Is this it? Is, is this here? Is this all there? Is this all there is? You know, as we look back over, let's say, our spiritual experience in 2014, maybe more than that, you know, as, as we look back over our spiritual experience, over our Christian lives, is, 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 is this it? Or is there more, as Christians, that, that we should be uh, pursuing? Like, do you see what I mean? You know, some people in the society... They can go out and they can take bits and little bits and pieces from all sorts of different ideas and different belief systems, different ideologies, and they can sort of try and, 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 and incorporate that into their own spiritual experience. Should we be doing that as Christians? Can we do that as Christians? Or what, or what about other Christians even? You know, they, they, they will go out and seem to pursue a sort of emotional high. In, in worship, they will maybe even try and incorporate some sort of new age thought into their spiritual experience. Can you do that? Can, can we do that? Are we allowed to do it? Is this, this all there is? Well, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to consider what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what that means for our present present spiritual experience and the hope the hope is tonight that as we do that we will come this evening to a greater appreciation and knowledge of the lord jesus christ and that that will set us up not only to sort of rejoice in him but that what we will look at tonight will help us revel in the gospel in the year 2015. That's the hope. But before we get into that, I'll tell you what, um, please permit me to kind of set the scene. And let's think about what it is that we've got here. Now, I think everyone in here, without exception, knows as well as I do what it is that we have got in front of us just now in the Bible. We've got a letter Okay, genius. We've got a letter from Paul to the church in Colossae. Now, everyone, we all know that, right? No problems there. I wonder, can you remember, if you've been here uh, previously, can you remember why it was that Paul bothered to write the letter? Do you remember what it's all about? Do you? Do you? Remember his friends Epaphras? has come to Paul, and he's come with a report about these Christians, this church in Colossae. Now, in general, this report that that Paphos has given Paul has been a pretty positive, a a good report. He's saying, these Christians, Paul and Colossae, they are getting all well. Things are are going, going cracking. They're getting all well. But here's the thing, really important for tonight. The report that Epaphras gives Paul also says that there is teaching going on in that church that is entirely contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Epaphras has told Paul there are false teachers in Colossae. And so Paul's heard this, and he's thought, I better write this letter. I better write to these people. Now, what I want you to see is that that's not just me sort of ticking the box 
of giving you background to these verses. It's not just me going through the motions about background knowledge here, not for a bit of it. Well, if we are going to understand the verses that we are looking at tonight, that section of scripture, we have to see that the problem with the false teachers is looming over. You know, it's casting this problem of the false teachers. It's casting its shadow over everything that Paul says in those verses. It is not just that Paul, out of the middle of nowhere, gives us this sort of grand explanation of the gospel that you've got in front of you. It doesn't just poof out of the middle of nowhere. No, do you see that this exquisite, a man is exquisite, this glorious unpacking of what Christ has done that we are looking at tonight, do you see that it all comes out of a warning that Paul gives about false teaching in verse 8? This false teaching is absolutely key if we are going to understand what Paul says here about our Savior, about our Lord, about the gospel. So, let's look at it. If you haven't already, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Let's consider our first heading. Let's consider fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. Christ. Okay. Uh, All the way through my primary school education, all the way through my primary school education, there was a consistent comment on my report cards. You know, it's like Groundhog Day every time I got a report card from from the school. They would give it to my dad, which I always hated. You know, give it to my mum. She'll be easier on me. But they gave it to my dad. My dad would take it home. He'd read out this report card in school. And it would say the same thing. It would say, Andy's getting on fine in school, but could do more. He's getting on fine, but he could do better. He could do more. Now, here's the thing. That, believe it or not, was the accusation that the false teachers in Colossae were leveling against, wait for it, God. They were saying to these Colossian believers, yeah, embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, do that, and God's going to do an awful lot for you. But the false teachers would then say, but if you add this and this to the gospel, if you believe this, this, and this to the gospel, God could do, God will do more for you. And it's that sort of heretical nonsense that Paul is specifically tackling here in verse 9. So I would ask you, Um, Just now, please look at verse 9. And let's see how Paul tackles um, that uh, accusation. What does he say in verse 9? He says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, if you were here, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, you remember that Paul is using the buzzword that the false teachers used. Do you remember what the buzzword was? They were talking about fullness. That's what they were offering. 
Paul turns that on his head and he says, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, (coughs) I ask you to think about what Paul says there. I ask you to consider what does he mean by that? All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Well, I'll also ask you to, to do this with me. Think about, scan over just the basics of what you know about God from Scripture. Like some of the big things, some of the major things you know about God from Scripture. What do you know about God? Well, you know, surely first of all, we're going to start in Genesis, you know that that God is creator, don't you? Like you would accept surely that God is the one who has created all things out of nothing. He's creator, you know that? What else do we know about God? Well, we know that, that he is sovereign, don't we? We know that he reigns supreme over everything, over all the kingdoms of this earth. We know that he's creator. We know that he is sovereign. I tell you, if you've been brought up in the free church or a reformed church, you maybe will also even know what the shorter catechism tells you about God. I won't test you. I wouldn't like to be tested by it either. But it says this about God. It says that God is, now think about this, listen to this. God is infinite and eternal. Ready for the next part? That he is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So wait a minute. We know a lot about God. Don't we? We know all that about God. And do you see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying that all of that, not just a part of it, not just a shadow of it, but all of that immensity of God, that is all present in the incarnate Jesus Christ. That Christ is not just the Father's foot soldier. The Christ is not merely the Father's messenger. Paul says, no, in Christ. All the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. You see it? So Paul says Christ is is perfectly divine. But wait a minute. Now come on. Paul has yet to make his point about this false teaching. So, follow me. My wife um, was recently telling me um, a story about her friend excuse me, a girl, a woman eh, from the United States and eh, her friend had a number of children, quite a lot of children, mostly boys, okay? And you know how it is. If you're a parent, you know how this is. If you've been in a church, you know how this is. You know how hectic it is at the end of a service if you've got quite a few kids and you're trying to get them all together, you know, to make sure that they're all kind of accounted for. Well, this particular morning in question, eh, my wife's friend had gathered, you know, all of her kids. She's got all the sort of kids together and she's carrying one. She's counting them all and looking at all the kids. And she realizes right then and there that she cannot find her little daughter. Okay, now imagine the terror of that. Like in this big church, and it was a sort of mega church, and everyone's gone. And she cannot find her little daughter. And imagine how frantic it is. She cannot find. And she's looking for the thing that is most valuable to her. 
and she's, she's running around this place and, she, and she's screaming her daughter's name. Nothing. Cannot find her. And she's just looking everywhere. She's looking everywhere until one of her friends comes up to her and uh, sort of taps her on the shoulder and she, and she turns around and, she's, and her friend says, Lauren, you're carrying your baby daughter. And I'm sure she felt fairly stupid. But do you see, wait a minute, that that Paul is making here to the Colossian church. See, think about it. The false teachers are encouraging these Colossians to go and look elsewhere for fullness. To go and look elsewhere for some sort of spiritual enrichment. And when Paul is saying, look all the time, you have this. And you have it in your arms. You have it. And you have it in Christ. Look what he says in verse 10. And I would ask you, when you look at it, to note the tense that verse 10 is written in. Paul says, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. And friends, I would ask you to give that some very, very serious thought as you head into a new year. I wonder, do you see tonight what it is that you have in Christ if you're a Christian? Do you see and do you understand what you have been given by God in Christ? Can I say this to you? Tonight, what a thought this is, as you sit there in your chair, your pew, as a Christian, you are in God's sight united to Jesus Christ. You are, as you sit there tonight, not on a future date, but tonight as a Christian, as you sit there, you are filled with the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign of the universe. You have tonight, not later on, you have tonight the greatest possible spiritual standing, the greatest possible spiritual experience that you could possibly have this side of glory. That's yours. Now, tonight, it's ours. So do we need to this year go looking somewhere else for spiritual nourishment, spiritual goodness? No, we just need to consider what we already have. We just need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. Because nothing, nothing outside of him can in any way compare to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Do you see what Paul is saying to the Colossians, to you? You as a Christian are fool, and you are fool in the Lord. So the Colossians, their fullness in Christ. Secondly, Paul goes on to speak about the Colossians' harmony with Christ. So fullness in Christ, okay. But now he talks about harmony with Christ. I'll tell you what he does here. What really Paul's doing here <coughs> is building on what he's just said. 
So he's begun to talk about unity that Christians have with Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 11 and verses 12, he takes that idea and he builds on it. He sort of elaborates on this idea of our fellowship and unity with Christ. And I want you to hear this. If you've been sleeping, wake up and hear this. I firmly believe that what Paul says in verses 11 and 12, if we grasp that tonight, it will enhance our love for Jesus Christ. So listen, listen up. And we'll have to be, we'll have to be alert and with one eye on the text. Because Paul says three things here that we need to identify. So let's, let's, let's look at them. What does he say about harmony with Jesus? If this is going to enhance our love of Jesus. Okay, first thing. Ready for this? Ready? Verse 11. Paul talks about what? Do you see it in verse 11? He talks about circumcision. So I'll, I'll ask you to identify if you can see it in, in your Bibles. He talks about circumcision. What does he say? He says, in him, so that is in Jesus Christ, Paul says, you were circumcised. <laughs> now, I'll be frank with you, when I'm reading scripture publicly in church and I have to read about circumcision, I always think, wait a minute, if there's visitors here, they're going to think uh, we're a, a, a bit out there, you know? You know, visitors are going to come in and say, what is he talking about? He's reading about circumcision. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, that's fine. But do you see this talk about circumcision here in Colossae? I think we should all think this is weird. We should all think this is very odd. See, if we think about it, what's Paul doing? Why is he talking about circumcision? Paul here is clearly countering the false teacher's demand that the Colossian Christians be circumcised. Okay, you with me? He's countering this claim that the false teachers are saying to the Colossian Christians, you've got to be circumcised. Do you see how weird that is? Like, why on earth were false teachers asking for the Colossians to be circumcised. I mean, this isn't Galatians. It's not that the false teachers were sort of Jews, you know, sort of Judaistic guys who were saying, oh, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to obey the law. You're not going to be saved. That's not what the false teachers... Why were the false teachers here demanding that Christians be circumcised? Well, I think we, we get an insight into the answer to that in what Paul goes on to say in verse 11. Have a look at it. Because he goes on to speak about the casting off, think about circumcision, the idea. He goes on to talk about the casting off of the flesh. He goes on to talk about the casting off of, wait for it, sinful nature. So what's he countering? I think he's countering the fact that the false teachers were telling the Colossians, guys, if you add circumcision to the gospel, then you will reach 
a higher plane of spiritual enlightenment. That if you add circumcision to the gospel, then you are going to have a greater spiritual experience. He is saying if you do that, so the, uh, the false teachers are saying, if you do that, you will not have to battle the flesh. You will not have to battle your carnal desires. And do you see what Paul says to that? In the words of, of, of my father, my father would say, Paul says, it's a load of tumph. It's a load of, of nonsense. He says, you do not need to be circumcised. You have already been circumcised in your heart by Jesus Christ. And again, I, I want you to ponder that. And I want you to think about this. And I want you to remember this as you go into the new year. And this morning I said um, that I wanted to be blunt about something. And tonight I'm going to say the same thing. And this sounds very, very blunt maybe. Maybe a bit uncomfortable as well. But this year, you as a Christian will have to battle your carnal desires. This year, you will have to battle your sin. And, and, and I urge you to resolve to do that in the Lord. But I would also urge you to remember this. Remember what it is that Paul's saying here that God has done for you. That you, in your salvation, have had your heart circumcised by Christ. That you, what's the tense, you have been made pure in Jesus Christ. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to have to battle against our sin. But part of our tonight, our present spiritual joy, is that we sit here and we have been made clean. We have been made holy by Jesus Christ. So he talks, he talks about circumcision. The second one here, if you, if you look at verse 12, um, Paul speaks about circumcision, but then he talks about being buried with Christ. Being buried with Christ. Now it's confession time. <coughs> confession time. I don't mean, of course, <laughs> that we will be rolling in a, a confession booth or anything like that. But it's confession time for myself. Because when Paul in Colossians here talks about this idea of dying with Jesus, I confess that I have never given this uh, the consideration and the thought and the attention that it needs. This idea of dying with Jesus. And that's a pity, because what Paul says here is awesome. I mean, it is absolutely amazing what Paul says here. And follow me through. Don't make the mistake that I made and, and pay no attention to what Paul says. He says, we have been, you have been buried with Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? The idea that you have been buried with Christ, died with, with, with Christ. Well, it's kind of obvious what he doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that our present sinfulness has died with Christ. We still sin. 
Nor does this idea that we have died with Christ mean that we will no longer face a mortal death. Of course, it doesn't mean that. In fact, what it does mean is greater and much more grand than either of those two things. Please hear this. He is saying here that now, and I I, I mean presently, when God looks at us tonight, that as Christians so united are we to Jesus Christ that he looks at us through the standing we have in Christ. Now, you've heard that before. There's nothing new as a Christian there. That's wonderful. But I tell you this, that is not where Paul ends. Paul goes on to say this. He says here that God does that retrospectively. That God back dates looking at us in Jesus Christ. Now do you see what that means? It means such is our union with Jesus Christ. Now think about this. That as Christ faced punishment for sin, and as Christ died thereafter, in a legal sense, so united are we to Jesus Christ, that when God looks at us, it is as though we have been punished for sin and died with Jesus Christ. Now, that is so important. And I will say it again in a different way. Just make sure you follow it. Make sure you get this tonight. So united are we to Jesus Christ that as Jesus Christ faced the wrath of God for wickedness, and died in a forensic sense, in a legal sense, due to our standing in union with Christ. For God, it is as though we went through facing that wrath and we went through that death. So let the heavens actually resound with the truth of this here, that we have been buried with Christ. Buried with Christ. And I wonder here, Do you see the implication of that? If we are united to Christ as he has faced the wrath of God, and if we are said to have faced the punishment and died, do you see the implication? It will never, ever, 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 ever happen to us again. Because of our union with Jesus Christ in our salvation, there will never be an experience of judgment for sin for the people of God. We have been buried and buried with Christ. And then the third thing here, circumcision, burial. If you look at verse 12 again, you'll see it. We've been circumcised with Christ. We've been buried. And then Paul talks about being raised with Christ. Being raised with Christ. Now, as before, I guess we've got to think, what does this mean? This idea of being raised with Christ. I mean, usually when we talk about this in church, usually when I talk about resurrection for the Christian in, in, in church, it's usually a future resurrection in view, isn't it? Isn't it? 
But the tense here is that we have been raised with Christ. So Paul is clearly talking about tonight, our present spiritual experience. So what does he mean? Well, again, look at the the rest of the verse. Look at verse 12. Let me read it to you. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him, how? Through your faith in the power of God. Okay, power of God. What else does Paul say the power of God does? The power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So the emphasis is on the power of God. I wonder, do you see what Paul is saying? He is saying that the exactly the same sort of power that raised Jesus Christ to life is the same, exactly the same sort of power that God has used within you to effect spiritual life. The same power, exactly the same sort of power that has raised Christ from the dead has been used inside your heart for salvation. And that's great. But when you start putting that together with with circumcision, what he says here, and with being buried, doesn't it maybe leave you a little breathless what, what, what Paul is saying about the gospel here? I mean, we think we need to look elsewhere for any sort of spiritual joy or spiritual satisfaction. Do you think that? Think about what he's saying. He's saying in circumcision, you've been purified. Tonight, you've been purified. Saying and being buried, you have been punished with Christ. It's happened, it's done. And he's saying here and being raised to life that you've experienced the same power to spiritual life that even Jesus Christ has had. It is marvelous, this. We have harmony in the gospel Harmony with Christ. Now I'm hoping you're, you're with me so far. We're just pulling into to a close tonight. I hope you're with me. We've seen talk of fullness in Jesus. We've talked about harmony. The last thing, and a very, very short thing. Let's think about what Paul says about triumph. Triumph. The Christian triumph through Christ. Twitter (coughs) is a very interesting place to be at this time of year. I don't know if you have a Twitter account or not. But it's very interesting at this time of year to to see what celebrities are hoping for and wishing for others in the new year. You've got all this talk about celebrities wishing people health and wealth in 2015. Boring. You've got uh, David Cameron. I don't know if you saw David Cameron's tweet uh, this past week. He said that the key, uh, I think, to joy and happiness in 2015 was our pursuit of material prosperity. Okay? So that's David Cameron. Now, so there's health and wealth and there's Material prosperity. Do you know what? In closing, and I I mean just in a a minute or two, 
I, I just, I want us to see what Paul would say is the key and the core and the heart of satisfaction and joy for you in 2015. What would he say? We've seen what David Cameron would say. What does Paul say here? What he does in verse 13 is he reminds um, these Colossian Christians of what they were uh, before God worked in their hearts. And think about it for yourself. He says, before God works in your heart, you were dead. You were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses. He says, you were dead before God, outside of Christ, dead. But he doesn't leave it there. He then tells us and unpacks how God has brought us to life. So what does he say? Um, Well, when I I was a much younger guy, when I was a student, first time around, myself and all my flatmates, you're going to think we were were crazy, but we used to give each other IOUs all the time. You know what what, uh, students are like? (laughs) Skint most of the time. And uh, so when one of us would get a sort of student loan, you know, we would all be sort of borrowing lots of money from each other. And then we would write out an IOU for exactly how much was, was borrowed. And there'd be IOUs, you know, kicking about all over the place. I want you to see that that is the language that Paul uses to explain what God has done to bring us to life in Jesus Christ. Because what he says here effectively is that every person on earth has an IOU before God. That's what he's referring to when he says here the written code. He's talking about an IOU. That Get this, to pay for, to exchange for salvation, we have an IOU written on us and what God demands from us is complete and perfect obedience to his law. And what Paul is saying here, of course, is that on the day of judgment, in the final reckoning of things, we would all, if God had not acted, stand before God and we would come up short. We would not be able to pay what is written on that IOU. But just let me end here with what Paul tells us about how Christ has intervened. Because this is wonderful. Think about the image here. Paul tells us that for his people, Christ has stepped in. For you, Christ has stepped in. That he has taken that IOU from your hand. That not only has Christ paid in full the debt that you owe God, that perfect obedience to the law, but that Christ has actually, what does Paul say? Christ has destroyed that IOU. How? Paul says he nailed it to the cross. Do you see what the key, the core to satisfaction and joy is in 2015? Can I say that David Cameron got it totally and utterly wrong? The key is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Satisfaction this year, joy, 
It is only found, and it is only found through and in and at the cross. And friends, that, that means that we can revel in the gospel this year. And I stand before you tonight, and I ask you as a Christian to do that more than you have ever done. To consider what it is that you have in Jesus Christ. That righteousness, that cleanness, that new life. And this year, you revel. You revel. You revel in the gospel. When we think about this, it's no wonder that all the way through the Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, Paul encourages those people to live in thankfulness to God. What a gospel we have, don't we? What a saviour we have. Let's go and enjoy the gospel. Let's go and embrace what it is that God has done for us through his son. Let's pray.